Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big and interesting ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome uh, an author and, and scholar to SALT Talks uh, by the name of John Preston. He's the author of many books. He's also the former arts editor and television critic of the Sunday Telegraph. As I mentioned, he's the author of six highly acclaimed books, including A Very English Scandal, which is now a BBC and Amazon Prime TV series starring Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw and The Dig, which uh, has recently been filmed starring Ralph Fiennes, Carrie Mulligan, and Lily James. And his most recent book is called Fall. Uh, and it's about the life and death of Robert Maxwell, who, is, who has been in the news because of his daughter's travails as well recently. But hosting today's talk is a big fan of Mr. Preston and reader of his books, Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT, and I'll turn it over to Anthony uh, to begin the interview. I, you know, I am loving this right now because I'm almost <laughs> 100% confident that you mispronounced Ralph Fiennes' name. Yeah. I, I, is that correct, Preston, Mr. Names. Preston? Well, I got to tell you, don't take this badly. You both mispronounced it. It's okay. Ralph Fiennes. Fine. See that? I love the fact. Well, I obviously, because I'm an Italian American from Long Island, <laughs> I'm I like an mispronounce, so I I mispronounce right. every word that I utter in the English language. But <laughs> the fact that you, Darcy, mispronounced it, just want you know, it's giving me joy beyond comprehension. <laughs> so I'm entering this salt talk, Mr. Preston, in a very good mood right now. Excellent. But, but, but sir, you wrote a phenomenal book about. Uh, Mr. Maxwell, the fall is the, it's called fall, the mysterious life and death of Robert Maxwell. Um, I want to start out though, with how you became an author, your odyssey, I think is an interesting one to, uh, beginning the process of writing these books, uh, mm. take us through that arc of your career, sir. Well, I was a journalist for a long time and I wrote a few novels. Uh, I'd get up very early in the morning and, and write for a couple of hours before I went into the office and the novels did okay. I mean, they you know hardly set the world on fire in terms of uh, sales. And then like a lot of print journalists, you know, in particularly in the UK, but also in the US, things started to get bad and then they got worse. And I began to think, hmm, hold on, I've got to find something else to do. So I thought, well, you know, I can't really do anything else apart from write. So I sat down and I wrote A Very English Scandal, which was about the Jeremy Thorpe affair, which was a big scandal in the 1970s, where this man who was the leader of the Liberal Party uh, was accused of um, diverting Liberal Party funds to pay a hitman to bump off his uh, gay lover. And it really kind of went on from there. And I... I kind of toyed with the idea of Maxwell for a bit and I couldn't kind of find a way in. And then it just seemed to me that, you know, in the UK, 30 years after his death, he's still seen as the, as the kind of embodiment of corporate villainy. 
And I really just wanted to look at him again and see if he was quite as black as he's been painted as, and if so, why, and whether he was perhaps a more kind of nuanced, complex figure than people have, on the whole, given him credit for. So let's go into that, because I think that this is uh, one of the more fascinating things. Who is, for our, we have lots of young viewers, uh, lots of young listeners. Uh, who is Robert Maxwell, John Preston? Who is Robert Maxwell? Well, Robert Maxwell set out to become the greatest media baron in the world. And he very nearly succeeded. But in fact, it was it all went horribly wrong. But one of the extraordinary things about Maxwell is that it's hard to think of anyone in the 20th century who journeyed as far from his roots as Maxwell did. He was born in a small town in what was then Czechoslovakia. His, uh, his family was Jewish. There was a large Jewish um, population in this, um, in this town. And at the age of 15 or 16, Maxwell goes off essentially to seek his fortune. And whilst he's away, it's during the war, um, his parents, three of his siblings, and his grandfather all die in Auschwitz. And that's really the prism that you have to look at Maxwell's life through. Um, would it have been very different had that not have happened to him? Almost certainly. Would he have been a better person? Who knows? But Essentially, there was a very, very dark cloud hanging over him from a young age. So I have a book here. Uh, it's, uh, it's called Fall, The Mysterious Life and Death of Robert Maxwell, Britain's Most Notorious Media Baron. There's another mm. media baron that is celebrating his 90th birthday. Indeed. Were, were, they, were they rivals, John? And if so, of course they were. Describe that rivalry to us. They were Maxwell and Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch for people that are paying close Indeed. attention. Um, Robert Maxwell and Rupert Murdoch were locked in this titanic struggle for almost 30 years, essentially to become the world's biggest media baron. And as Maxwell's son, Ian, said to me when I was researching the book, he said, you know, one of the things you have to remember is that there was a time when... Uh, my father and I, my father and, and Rupert Murdoch were the only two people on the planet breathing the same air. And it was as if the two of them were kind of slugging it out uh, on the top of Mount Everest uh, to become, you know, the greatest um, media figure in the world. And, and Murdoch won every round, essentially. But in seeking to prove that he belonged in the same arena as Murdoch, Maxwell set in chain, set in train a chain of events that led to his own kind of physical and mental destruction, his downfall, and ultimately his death. So, but let, let's go back for a second because hmm. uh, Mr. Murdoch, uh, his father was a print uh, media maven in Australia. He hmm. was already starting to reach out away from Australia into other English-speaking countries. Uh, and so I'll say something somewhat English, hopefully it won't be too offensive, but you guys 
sort of have this aristocracy. It seems like Murdoch started from a starting block that was well ahead of Mr. Maxwell. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's true. But they were both outsiders and they both were not members of the British establishment. Uh, Murdoch wasn't Jewish, which probably helped him. And although Maxwell had changed his name to something that sounded not remotely Jewish, I think there was quite a lot of anti-Semitism there, particularly in the city of London at the time. But Maxwell and Murdoch had first met in 1963 in Australia. And when I went to see Murdoch for the book, he was, he was very obliging, agreed to see me. And uh, he said that he'd first met um, Maxwell. Maxwell comes to Australia and he's got this plan that he wants to sell encyclopedias in Australia, all in Southeast Asia. And he's looking for a business partner. And, uh, and Murdoch, uh, as he admitted, was kind of spellbound by Maxwell. He's got the gift of the gab. He's very charismatic. Murdoch is just starting out and he agrees to become Maxwell's business partner. He's going to pay a million Australian dollars and together they're going to sell these encyclopedias all over Southeast Asia. And the plan is that Murdoch is going to come to London, they'll sign the contract and then it'll all start. But before he has a chance to come to London, Murdoch has lunch with a friend of his who's a publisher in Australia and he's telling him all about this great plan he's got with this extraordinary man Maxwell that he's met. And the publisher starts laughing and, and Murdoch is kind of bemused and is going, well, what's so funny? And it turns out that Maxwell had actually got the encyclopedias were bankrupt stock that the publisher had given to Maxwell for free. And he was trying to flog them on to Murdoch for a million dollars. And as Murdoch said, you know, he was obviously trying to con me and he was, you know, a crook. And as far as Mac Murdoch was concerned, that, you know, he decided he didn't want any more, anything more to do with Maxwell, and that was going to be it. And he never expected to see him again. But in fact, their fates were entwined from that moment on, and it used to drive Murdoch nuts that they were always being mentioned in the same breath, and the fact that their initials were the same as well added a kind of, you know, another squeeze of poison as far as he was concerned. It's, you know, it's fascinating. There's a picture in the book. I'm going to hold it up here because this is um, an interesting picture. It is a picture of uh, Mr. Murdoch and Mr. Maxwell together. And as you <laughs> point out in the book, that is a rare occurrence for the two of them to be in the same room together uh, after that uh, sequence of events that you're describing. Um, was he a crook? Was Mr. Maxwell a crook, uh, according to your research? I think it's a very difficult question to answer in a way. If you look at what happened to Maxwell in his the early part of his business career, he winds up in Berlin in 1946. He's helping to run an allied newspaper in, in Berlin designed to kind of uh, reintroduce Germans to the joys of democracy. And this man walks in one day and says, can you help me? And he turns out to be the biggest publisher of scientific journals in Germany. And nobody has published any scientific research in Germany during the war. And this man has a vast backlog of stuff that he can't get anyone to publish. 
And Maxwell's first instinct is to kick him out because that's basically was always Max, Maxwell's first instinct with anybody. And then he thinks, hold on a moment. And for years as a young man, he's dreamt of getting hold of this commodity that's going to be an enormous demand after the war that he can get for next to no money. And he suddenly realized, my God, you know, the answer's just landed in my lap. And the commodity was knowledge. And Maxwell becomes, during the 1950s, the world's biggest publisher of scientific journals. And he always flew pretty close to the wind in terms of uh, his business career. But I think he was, you know, he was a... a, a he, he, while one eye was always sort of, as it were, fixed on his profit margins, the other could occasionally go off an unexpectedly idealistic glint. And I think he did strongly believe in the virtues and importance of scientific research. It's when he becomes obsessed with owning a newspaper and with going toe-to-toe with Rupert Murdoch that things really start to go haywire and the rot sets in. Is this uh, the classic Greek story of someone that is overreaching? Is this hubris? Is this a lack of self-awareness? Is this just a twist of fate that leads to accidental tragedy? How do you, how do you, uh, how would you frame this narrative of Mr. Maxwell's life? I think it's a classic story of hubris. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, terrible morality tale in a way of someone for whom nothing was ever enough. Um, And as Maxwell becomes older, it's as if he's constantly trying to grasp this indefinable something that's going to give him a sense of completion and fulfillment. And of course, it always eludes him and money doesn't do it. And, um, and, and there always is this kind of constantly receding horizon. And the more desperate he becomes, the more he overreaches himself and the more he gets into terrible financial trouble. And uh, and the more the cracks start to appear. Do you, do you think that uh, uh, that was a suicide, his death? Well, Maxwell disappeared off the back of his yacht, named after his youngest daughter and favorite child, the Lady Ghislaine, in the early hours of the 5th of November, 1991. Did you notice how he pronounced that? I just want to make sure you get that right, John, when you come in with the questions, okay? I know it's that Ghislaine. one. I know that one, it's Ghislaine. You were saying just Lane for like a year, but it's fine. Go ahead. Let's go to Ghislaine. He's off the back of the boat. Did he so jump? So he disappears he off the back of the boat. Yeah. Is this and a that, case? No, I think basically that morning he's due to fly back to London where he's essentially going to be facing the equivalent of three firing squads. He knows by this point that the police are after him, the bankers are after him, and the mirror pensioners know that he's been looting the pension fund. So... There are three possible scenarios. Was he pushed? Did he jump? Did he fall? Now, there are a lot of people who will tell you 
without any kind of tremor of doubt that he was bumped off, usually by Mossad. For, uh, Mossad are always the kind of front runners in the queue here, well, it's, although it's quite a long queue. I mean, there, and there are certainly a lot of people who would be very happy to bump Maxwell off. But there's no evidence at all that he was murdered. And if it doesn't really make sense. I mean, why go to the trouble of sending a team of amphibious hitmen out to the middle of, middle of the Atlantic to tip him into the sea when Maxwell was so addicted to self-publicity that he practically walked around with a target pinned to his forehead anyway? So I think we can safely dismiss murder. If it was an accident, in many respects, it was an astonishingly fortuitous accident given that he knew what was going to happen to him. Um, did he commit suicide? Well, certainly, I mean, interestingly about kind of the people I interviewed for the book, pretty much split down the middle. Rupert Murdoch, for instance, absolutely convinced, no doubt whatsoever that Maxwell committed suicide. My own suspicion is that the line between an accident and suicide might be more blurred than we tend to assume. And I suspect that the answer lies somewhere along that line. Okay, so so you're not in Rupert Murdoch's camp, but you're not fully convinced, but there's a lot of speculation around him being a Mossad agent, a potential double agent, or an agent of the KGB. Uh, why did people believe that to be the case? And is there any truth to those rumors? Well, there was, I mean, Maxwell was certainly a spy. Um, and uh, he was a spy for British intelligence during the war. And he had this astonishing capacity to pick up languages. He spoke, I think, seven languages. So when he is in Berlin at the end of the war, Berlin is that time divided into four zones, the French zone, the American zone, the Russian zone, and the British zone, I think. Yeah. So Maxwell can move from zone to zone and pass himself off as a native. So he's very, very useful to British intelligence like that. And indeed, uh, the British intelligence set him up in business when he comes to England at the end of the war. Um, I think he probably stopped being a spy sometime in the 50s, but he carried on. He loved um, being a networker. He loved feeling important and conveying bits and pieces of information from one government to another. He was incredibly well-connected. He had fantastically good contacts behind what was then the Iron Curtain because he was doing a lot of business in Russia at a time when virtually no other uh, Western business people were doing any business at all. Uh, he had very good contacts with the Israeli government. Um, so he was, there was no doubt that he was a very kind of useful pipe through which to pass information. But I don't believe that he was a double agent for anybody. And I don't believe that he was a fully paid up agent for anybody either. I mean, indeed, you know, I mean, if given them, you know, one of the kind of prime qualifications, I mean, spying is normally something that takes place behind a curtain, as it were. 
Maxwell was the complete opposite of that. He had to dominate any room that he set foot in. So he would have, in many respects, been a terrible liability to any government that employed him as a spy. So I think he was used by people to pass information back and forth, but that was pretty much as far as it went. So no no reason for them then to off him then, yeah? No, no, yeah. really not. And, you know, and there's, you know, there's stories that he was trying to blackmail the Israeli government um, and into kind of bailing him out at a time when everything was going down the pan. But again, absolutely no evidence to suggest that at all. And indeed, the fact that the, Israeli, the Israelis pretty much gave him a state funeral when he died and buried him on the Mount of Olives seems a kind of odd thing to do if they've just bumped him off. So that, that fascinating stuff, but he looms large even today. Uh, his daughter is now in jail. Mm -hmm. um, she was a close friend of alleged conspirator Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. Was her upbringing, what was her upbringing like, and how did that association come about? Well, I think, I think it was, the strange thing is that actually family life with the Maxwells uh, for quite a long time was perfectly happy. They lived in this enormous house um, on just outside Oxford, looking out over the dreaming spires of Oxford University. The Maxwells had nine children, two of whom died. And Ghislaine is born in pretty much the same week as Maxwell's oldest child, oldest son, who's the heir designate, Michael, is very badly injured in a car crash. Uh, he's in his teens and he lies in a coma for the next seven years and then dies. And that cast this terrible black cloud over the Maxwell's family life. And just as Maxwell himself had been brought up under this terrible cloud of what had happened to his own family, I think Ghislaine was brought up under a similarly black cloud. Um, and like all the Maxwell children at one time or another, she worked for his father. She was, she was, she was his father's favorite. I think she was the one who could charm him more easily than the others and possibly was less intimidated by him. The Maxwells would have these kind of pretty grim Sunday lunches where they would have to, each child would have to give a little talk about what they'd accomplished that week and what they hoped to accomplish in the week to come. And sometimes they'd be asked about kind of current affairs. And another of Maxwell's daughters described to me the kind of fear of watching her, the sort of searchlight beam of her father's gaze move around the table towards her. Uh, and I don't think Ghislaine suffered as badly from that, perhaps, as the others. Um, and then when her father died, she was absolutely grief-stricken, possibly even more so than any of her siblings. Uh, I think she absolutely adored her father. Um, and she found herself in New York. How 
I mean, I, people have tried to draw analogies between Jeffrey Epstein and her father, but they don't really stack up apart from the fact they were both extremely wealthy men at one stage. Uh, I mean, Epstein was a much more shadowy figure than Maxwell. I mean, Maxwell really was this tremendous egomaniac, whereas you feel with Epstein, Epstein kind of was happier operating underneath the radar. Um, and, you know, how she came into Epstein's orbit, well, obviously there's been a lot written about that. But, you know, I'm uh, one of the people who think that it's entirely possible that Ghislaine, you know, she seems to have been tried and found guilty by the media on both sides of the, the Atlantic before she stood trial. And I believe, possibly in a rather old-fashioned way, that she uh, deserves a fair trial. And who knows, she may well get off. Yeah, well, we'll have to, we'll have to see. I, I, I don't know a lot about her. Um, as I like to tell my friends in New York, I didn't start making any money until well after Jeff Epstein's career was exposed and over. So I don't have any, <laughs> thank God, any, any relationship there. But it did, it did seem to be that anybody of any profile or wealth was somehow ensnared in his web. Uh, do you think she was ensnared in his web? Or do you think that she was a, quote unquote, co-conspirator of his? I, the, the short answer is, I don't know. And my book, I very carefully stopped um, before any of that happened because yeah. I feel it is a different story. Yeah, no, and I and, understand that. That's why I'm asking the question because I, I, I noticed the stoppage here. I yeah. have to turn it over to the millennial. You and I are, uh, are baby boomers. The millennial is dying to ask questions. <laughs> Tell the truth. Before the book came out, did you have any idea who Robert Maxwell was? I I was probably your I was probably your age on the Goldman Sachs trading desk where we yeah. had done several secondary offerings for him. And Goldman actually had to pay a settlement to those pensioners, John. I don't John Preston. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. That. Yeah, indeed. And so I remember that day vividly because there was a dark parlor over the uh, trading desk the day that Mr. Maxwell died. Did you know who he was, Darcy? I did because as, as any millennial would do, I've gone down the entire, you know, he's a foreign intelligence agent rabbit hole and, and Jeff Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell were part of some uh, honeypot scheme to ensnare powerful people around the world uh, and blackmail them, which we're not going to get deep into those conspiratorial rabbit holes. But I, I knew about him because of the whole Ghislaine Maxwell thing and, and uh, read up on him. But Obviously, you got more background through this wonderful book. <laughs> but um, yeah, thank you, Anthony, for passing the baton. So one of the things that I found fascinating about Robert Maxwell uh, was the similarities he has to, to other schemers that have existed throughout history, whether it be Frank Abagnale, Catch Me If You Can, yeah. um, or, or others, Bernie Madoff, or, or the 1MDB scandal, uh, where people are able to trick financial institutions, wealthy investors through just uh, sheer force of will. What about his personality and his skill set allowed him to do that? I think, well, Maxwell was a tremendously 
charismatic man. Uh, he was also very intimidating. Um, so very few people in the UK genuinely stood up to him. A lot of people claim to have stood up to him uh, and said that, you know, I would have no truck whatsoever with Maxwell and his disgraceful ways. But a lot of them were just rolled over like, you know, complete dummies when Maxwell was actually in their company. The extraordinary thing about one of the many, many things about Maxwell's financial affairs is that throughout the 1980s, he's a kind of, you know, he's become, he's a very successful businessman. He has, he genuinely has money um, in the 1980s, in the beginning of the 1980s. But as things go on and as he overreaches himself, the very few people ever say, well, hold on a minute, you know, where is this money? And if they ever did say it, Maxwell would go, well, it's all sorted away in Liechtenstein. And Liechtenstein is this tiny kind of quasi country, which is essentially a tax haven. So you put money in Liechtenstein and nobody can get at it. So all he ever did was to say, well, I've got billions stashed away in Liechtenstein. And they all believed him. I mean, it was astonishing. But I think that, you know, there is a big difference between someone like Maxwell and someone like Bernie Madoff in that, you know, Bernie Madoff was solely interested in lining his own pockets. Maxwell, weirdly, I mean, I think he would have actually, he did loot money from the, par the pension funds of, the, of, the mirror, of mirror newspapers, but I think he would have paid it back if he'd been able to. He wasn't particularly interested in money for the sake of money. He liked to wield power and influence, but he had virtually no interest in possessions apart from his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, which he, he was very fond of. Um, but he, he's a kind of, you know, he's a man without a center in a funny sort of way. What did he want? You know, and you feel that Maxwell himself didn't really know. And he's just constantly trying to find out. Is it, is it like a, a Robert Moses situation, the power broker, great Robert Caro book, where a yes. man maybe starts his life with a certain ideological bent, but then he tastes power and, and it becomes a pursuit of power and influence for the sake of it? I think with Maxwell, idealism and expediency were always running along parallel tracks. So I don't think it was necessarily that one took over from the other, although one certainly did become, um, you know, supreme as it were um i mean i remember when i was when i started researching the book and when i started writing it someone asked me how, how i was going to do it and i said it's like a build your own citizen cane kit and it really is a bit like that and and if you chuck in bits of the great gatsby you pretty much got it you know you have this extraordinary vivid technicolor mythological life um and as i said you know as i said to anthony you know it is very hard to think of anyone in the 20th century who journeyed as far from his roots as maxwell and you, you have this strange feeling 
the older he becomes, it's as if the past is kind of constantly snapping at his heels, almost mocking him for what he's achieved and basically saying you can never escape who you were. Yeah. So is this going to be turned into a Netflix series or a movie or both? What's the future of this story? Because it's too interesting to not be adapted to the screen. Well, it's been bought by uh, the UK company, Working Title, and they plan to turn it into uh, a TV series. So there's some discussion at the moment whether you could have one actor playing the young Robert Maxwell, who, who was incredibly good looking. I mean, looked kind of like Clark Gable. And Maxwell, the older he got, the bigger he got. And I mean, really to the point where you would need someone in the mother of all fat suits to be able to play him. Um, so, I, but I'm delighted to say that's not going to be my problem. Anthony has his screen actors guild. Anthony has his screen actors guild. John, if you start, I'm cutting your mic, John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he was trying to suggest that I could play him without the fat suit. <laughs> if you start, John, I'm cutting your mic. I saw where you were going with that, okay? <laughs> no, 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 that is you what, you what I'm afraid said? is Maxwellian Mr. paranoia. Mr. Preston, did you hear what he said? He said, I had a Screen Actors Guild card. He was already starving. <laughs> I had to get in there and interject. <laughs> Keep going, Darcy. Go ahead. He, he had already started to respond before I even said anything, uh, John. So your, your comment about the paranoia is correct. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's fascinating stuff. And we look forward to watching that. Not and necessarily they... paranoia if people are after you. Just remember that, okay? <laughs> well, we look forward to watching it on screen and hope they remain true to your wonderful book. Uh, before we let you go, is there anything else interesting that we didn't cover related to his life that you think uh, was interesting as you did your research? I think he's a kind of figure who foreshadows Donald Trump in a way, because they both of them have similar kind of crazed self-aggrandizement. And, and Maxwell, um, as soon as he buys the Daily Mirror in the, in the mid-1980s, um, he rechristens it, uh, his headquarters, Maxwell House. So you can see, you know, there's a pretty, you know, short line between Maxwell House and Trump Tower. And Trump, uh, Maxwell buys the New York Daily News at the beginning of 1991. And Trump has indeed tried to buy the New York Daily News on several occasions during the 1980s um, as a springboard for his political career. And Trump was kind of fascinated by Maxwell. And there's a kind of, I remember I talked to Maxwell's valet who said that Maxwell once had a party on board the Lady Ghislaine and all these kind of the great and good of New York were there, including Donald Trump. And because Maxwell was very proud of his, um, there was a cream shag pile carpet. So all the guests had to take their shoes off and put these little kind of blue plastic booties on that would protect the carpet. And Maxwell's valet told me that, you know, Maxwell very reluctant, that Trump very reluctantly removed his uh, shoes. But he looked around the yacht with this expression of kind of awe and envy on his face as if, Maxwell had something that Trump lusted after, but at the time hadn't quite got his hands on. I guess he eventually got his hands on it for at least four years. Indeed he did. 
All right. Well, John, it's fascinating to have you on. It's a great book, Fall, uh, about the life and mysterious death of Robert Maxwell. Anthony, you want to hold it up one more time? The American version of (laughs) copies, the UK and the American version. But this was a a great read. It reads like a thriller, John. Uh, Congratulations on your uh, Golden Globe winning uh, television series as well. And uh, we look forward to your future works. Thank you again for thank joining you. us on Salt Talks. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you everybody for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with author John Preston. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. You can also interact with us on social media. We're most active on Twitter at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word to your friends about these Salt Talks. We love educating uh, our community and growing our audience as well. And on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here soon.